Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Only guilty man in Shawshank. Hey everybody, we are live here on the Safety Doc Podcast out of the North Star Recording Studio here in the great state of Wisconsin. I am your host, Dr. David Proden, bringing you expertise and expert guests in the areas of school and community safety. Today is a wonderful day because our guest is Larry Lawton. Um, so much to share. We're going to talk about situational awareness. He has the fastest growing YouTube channel out there. Um, he joined, I think, in December. I, I checked today. He's like at a 710,000 uh, subscribers. Like every time you refresh, it goes up. It's just amazing. So, But it's amazing because the content is great and the man is great. Larry Lawton brings so much uh, to situational awareness. I'm, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. I wrote it down here. And the old safety doc uh, might have did this in smaller print than he should have, but let me go through this. Larry Lawton was America's biggest jewel thief on the FBI's most wanted list and spent 11 years in dangerous federal prisons. Released from prison in 2007, Larry focused on decision-making and bringing awareness to his reality check program, which guides people away from the wrong path and brings clarity to the likely consequences of crime, including losing your freedom reputation, self-respect, and connection to family. Larry has one of the fastest growing channels on YouTube and appears on TV and radio. He's an expert on crime, drugs, youth issues, and law enforcement, community policing. He's also the first ex-convict to be an honorary police officer. The book Gangster Redemption tells the true life story of Larry's journey from making bad decisions to shifting the meaning and focus of his life to saving young people from habitual crime and incarceration. Links to Larry's content will be shared in the episode. I already have them on the right-hand side if it's in YouTube. Now, every show, of course, has a blog post with it. Everything will be detailed out in the blog post. So welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast, Larry. Thank you for having me, David. I'm glad to be here, and thank you for the great introduction. So, and, and just, yeah, people go over and, and check Larry Lawton's channel on YouTube and then it's the gateway to so much uh, outstanding uh, content. But I, I, I like uh, you. You had the one video where you're talking about uh, pasta. You would make like you know forty pounds of pasta for people in prison, and and uh, you you have this hack where you take two metal plates and and things, and you're always like, don't try this at home though. Don't, <laughs> don't you're watching. It's like, well, don't try it. I'm thinking, yeah. I'm not going to try that because I'd be in a dark studio right now, and I'd be doing this with a flashlight and a battery pack. But um, so. So, Larry, I want to I want to also thank you for your dedication to uh, especially youth, um, helping youth identify the options that they have in life, um, understanding the consequences, uh, keeping them out of a, a system which you've described so many times as flawed. You know, and in a recent show, you talked about you know isolation and putting you know juveniles in, in you know detention centers um, without you know proper access to information, just dialogue, things like that. And it's really, it's really a recipe for disaster. You're helping to reform that, doing so much. Situational awareness. So here on the Safety Doc Podcast, we talk a lot about that. 
And I want to talk about situational awareness today with you. So it's basically what's happening around you. And, and you know, you had situational awareness where if you weren't aware of what was happening around you, you could be stabbed, you could be killed or your friends. Um, so what I want you to do, you know, right now is tell me about um, situational awareness skills, I guess, that you acquired throughout life, maybe in the Coast Guard, um, maybe as a jewel thief. I know, you know, one video it was you would case a place for like three weeks watching for things like what what angle does the light reflect off the window so somebody can't see in? And then in prison, situational awareness, how, how do I know what's happening? What am I detecting? Because right now, Larry, this is, everybody's asking me this question. How do I stay situationally aware? And I'm like, I've got the perfect person. Well, you know, that's a great question, but I, I think there's, there's two parts to that question. Like, okay. one is the preparation. Obviously, you know, when I was a criminal and a bad guy, and just to let your audience know, I'm the only ex-con in the United States who's an honorary police officer and recognized on the floor of the United States Congress for helping young people. And uh, what you what you talked about with situational awareness is I call gut instinct or a feeling. And obviously, you know, I'm a pretty big guy. I mean, I'm 5'10", 240, 245, but I used to work out heavily. I was a, a pretty big guy. And it wasn't my physical strength or physical powers that, that really made me survive 12 years in some of the toughest. I was, I, I was sentenced to four 12-year sentence for... Uh, jewelry robbery. I didn't hurt or kill anybody. I let your audience know that. But I was a bad guy. And I also talk about change with young people. But what happened with myself, it wasn't my physical. It was my communication skills. And as you would call it, situational awareness or gut instinct. You could feel tension in the air. In okay. Literally, you, I mean, there's little things. Obviously, we all have our senses. We all have something. And when you see people who are, you know, I call them daydreaming or out to lunch, you know, we call that that old phrase. Right. <laughs> Not paying attention to people around. It's it's an old saying with law enforcement. When you go to when you Christmas shopping this year or whatever holiday you get to, and you go to a mall or whatever, obviously not right now, but when you go to a mall or wherever you're at and you come back to your car, you should be situational aware. What's around you, who's there? Did somebody follow you? Check things out. It's the same thing with a gut instinct. You can feel tension. You could see somebody who shouldn't have something on in prison. If you saw people with sneakers and their boots on when normally they'd be wearing their flip-flops. Okay. Something's wrong. What's up? You got to look. Is, is something going to go down? Somebody going to get stabbed? Is there going to be a riot? Is somebody and two gangs going to go at it? So you have to figure that out in your head. And you process that by all of the stuff that's around you. And obviously the quicker you can do that, the quicker you're going to get out of that situation or out of that area that's going to have trouble. So, you know, all of the time I spent in prison, uh, obviously that heightened my, my alerts, but I had those from the, like you said, the Coast Guard and all. And I believe a lot of that, uh, Dave, it has to do with the way you grow up and where I grew up. I grew up in the Bronx in Brooklyn, New York. And in that era, too, in the uh, 70s, really late 60s, early 70s, and yes. that's my formative years, and then even into my teenage years, you better know what's going on around you, or you're going to be put in a situation that you're going to get either in trouble, or you can get into a fight, or something of that nature that you don't really want to get into. So that's your situational awareness. It's that gut 
people call it what different things. I call it the gut feeling. Yeah. No, you. I can. You know. I often tell people to this day, I can feel tension in a room. If I go into a room, I can feel, and it's a lot of little things that are hitting on your feelings. The way people's eyes shift, the way they might turn and look at you, or look at somebody else, or what again, what they're wearing, where they're standing. You know, are people, you know, who are in a, in, a, in a flight or fight situation, are they ready to be up against the wall, ready to go so no one's behind them? Or are they near the door, ready for flight? Uh, when I was in prison and I had a friend of mine, uh, we, you know, it's funny. I have a lot of friends of mine, you know, color friends, and I'm a minority. In prison, you're a minority. So I know what it feels like to be a minority. And that's why I have a lot of passion or I have a lot of heart for people of minorities. Because I know what the outside is like. It's the same on the inside. You know, there's 15% white. You know, there's uh, 45% uh, colored. And then whatever, 35% uh, Hispanic. And then there's white people, 15%. So you get that same gut that I think a lot of people on the outside feel. So when I saw riots happening or two groups getting ready to go, whether it's the gangster disciples against the Aryan Brotherhood or whatever it is, Wow. I put myself up against the wall. You can't oh. run. You can't go anywhere. Okay. And I would put myself up against the wall with a friend of mine, and we watching the situation, and nobody's behind us. So if something comes at you, you can face it. And it's just that's your situational awareness. Obviously, I think young people and people all the need to have situational awareness to one, stay out of trouble, maybe avoid a, a place they shouldn't be. Uh, and that doesn't mean just on the school shootings. And you know about Parkland, of course. And I lived right next to Parkland. I was on a lot of TV shows. And if you look on my site, uh, you'll see a great thing, how we can prevent school shootings. There's a great thing on Channel 7 or one of the news organizations. Yeah. And, and I actually did that video. And it's just like that. that you know, young people should develop that. And if they're not, you know, we call it out to lunch, you know, somebody, where, where's their brain at? Now, don't get me wrong. I think parents should be able to teach their kids. You know, when you grow up in an area where you have to have situational awareness, and that's a great, I never thought of it like that, what you're saying, situational awareness. I just thought of it as feelings or gut instincts or knowing yeah. what's around you. And I think that that's one, it's a learned behavior. You're taught very young to come up and know those things. Or you can, uh, you know, it's kind of a couple of times you get your butt kicked or something happens to you. You're going to learn quick. That's usually what happens as well. Wow. So, Larry, um, is there anything that stands out as something one time when you just, as you said, you got feeling you you detect it, uh, something's not right today, and then like something really bad happened oh, so numerous times okay. one time i'll tell you you know we're in the unit in prison and obviously you put alcohol with people in a prison cell with people who have no concept of ever getting out life sentence people i was in a prison we had two thousand inmates 880 had life wow yeah that's called letters now they're never getting out baby. now what, listen if I was never getting out. I know my attitude, my the way I looked at things would be a whole lot different than they were when I had what they call a date. I had an exit date. I knew I was getting out if I made it through this kind of survival. 
So you have what they call a date. When you have letters on your jacket in prison, that means it says life. Literally says L-I-F-E. Oh, my goodness. Okay. leave in a body bag. That's the only way you get out. There's no parole. There's no second chance. When you're in the federal system, which is the worst system, I love when people say, oh, I'd rather be in the feds than the state. They have no idea what they're talking about. Right. None. Right. Because in the feds, they don't care how much money you have. They'll put you on a plane. I've been on Con Air 16 times, flown around the country, and and, and just what they call diesel therapy. Put, I, I was taken on a plane just for a ride around the country in shackles and handcuffs around the whole country, put right back in the same cell. That's amazing. Oh, my God. Do you want to talk about just, I mean, what, ways to really break down a human being? But I was in the unit, and we were, I was with my buddy Ron, and we're just sitting there, we're watching everything going on. Now, you put alcohol or a bunch of life sins, and people, everyone's laughing and stuff, and you start seeing things differently, situational awareness. You see this group who you know, a couple of them are gang members, or they're grouping up. All of a sudden, you're watching them, and all of a sudden, you see them, they were hanging out, laughing, and they had their flip-flops on, they were right near their cell. You know, you look up five minutes later and you see them with their boots on. Okay. And you see them not as having as much fun. So you're saying, so what is going on here? Something is up. And at that point, you know you have to get ready. You know, you get ready. How we got ready in prison was I would get ice for myself. I would make sure if, if, if what they call store man was around, I would say, hey, listen, do you have any soups? Because I know if something big enough jumps off, we're going to have a lockdown. And yeah. if a lockdown happens, you might be in that cell for a week, two weeks, never getting out. Okay. You better have little things, ramen noodle soups. So you eat raw and you let you, you drink water and expand in your stomach so you're not hungry. I went from being a millionaire to eat 25 cent soups to say, I'm not being hungry. So anyway, all of that awareness, situation, and you're seeing people. So we're sitting there, my buddy and I, Ron, and we're watching this. And Ron, would you see it? I said, yeah, I'm getting ready. You're getting ready. Okay, we go do a few things. Now, we're watching each other's back. Yeah. You don't know who's getting kicked off. You don't know. See, in, 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 the, in the environment I was in, David, you don't know if you pissed someone off. Let me give you an example. You could walk down a tier in prison. Just walk straight down the tier and look in somebody's cell. You might see somebody having sex with another person. You sure. might see another guy shooting heroin. And that guy is already a psychopath. He's saying, oh, Lawton wants to steal my guy or girl, whatever they want to call him. Lawton wants to take my dope. Oh, my. I, don't, I don't even know I saw right. it. I mean, you know, right. I don't know this. And he's already planning my murder, literally. And that's why in all the years, and I was in for 11, I got four 12-year sentences, and I spent from 1996 to 2007 locked up, never getting out. And I never, in all of that time, ever slept past 6 o'clock in the morning, ever. Not one day, because when those doors open, you have your boots on and you're ready. Because if you piss someone off and you didn't know, where do you think they're going to get you? They're going to get you in your bunk when you're sleeping. Or when you go to the shower and you're not with somebody. You don't know that. Because you don't know you piss somebody off. Okay. That's the kind of, kind of, you talk situational awareness. So here we are. We get our stuff. Ron gets his stuff. And we're, we're just waiting. We, we've been in, in the joint a long time at that point. I was in about eight, nine years. I knew what was coming on. Ron was in 10, 12 years already. Good old dude. Again, prisoner. But made mistakes. But when I say good, you know, it's funny. I 
I do my YouTube videos and I say to somebody, yeah, Nicky Scarfo, you know, he killed 30 people, then, but he was a good guy. You know, people start laughing. Sure. Obviously what he did is wrong and, and, and not good. And there are psychopaths. I tell people every day, David, there are people in prison I never want to see get out. I don't want them living next to you or my me or my mom or right. anybody I know because they'll kill you. They are psychopaths. They don't belong out of prison and that's what prisons are for. But the mass, the vast majority of people in prison are rehabilitable. Re uh, look at my mom. Uh, can be re rehabilitated. Yeah. Mass no, I was struggling with that one too. I'm like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Sometimes yeah, rehabilitated. Yeah. It, it's, yeah, they can be totally. And you know what happens, David, is we start lumping everybody into one, and all we're doing is making more room. That, that's a whole other thing. So we're on the tier. Sure enough, we're seeing this group, and now we see another group. We go, okay. We can almost pinpoint when it's going to happen. You can watch the body language, who's going into that. They send a lookout for where the guard is. Okay. It's getting close. They look wherever. A couple other guys come out to, to watch other guys. So we're sitting there. All of a sudden, Ron goes, you know it's going to hit any minute. Sure enough, bang. Fight, fight, fight. All at once, stabbings, literally. And the guards hit their, their alarms, screaming, lockdown, lockdown. The alarm's going off. And we already know what's going on. We just get to ourselves. And we got, we're ready for the lockdown. And four people were stabbed, blood all over the place. You know, people get, we call them coming out in handcuffs, going through the hole, getting transferred. And... If you didn't have situational awareness, you might have been right near that happen. Two things will happen. One, you can get involved in it. They right. think you're there for somebody's protection or a friend. They saw you on the commissary line with them and talked to them, and now you're his buddy. Or you could get under investigation by the prison itself saying, what are you doing there? Or you saw it happen. What did you do? If you don't have situational awareness in that kind of situation, you're in a, you know, you're, you're up shit's Creek. I guess I can say that on your channel. Sure. And, uh, and that's exactly what happens, but it happens what, you know, you know, you as a doctor deal with this with young people and situational awareness, you know, it, it, it happens in schools every day. I mean, if you don't know where you're at with young kids and I deal with young kids all over the country and the gangs and stuff in the schools and the intimidation and who's got what personality and right. who's he a follower? Is he a type A? Is he a leader? Is he, you know, does he have, most kids have the issues of self-confidence, sexuality, whatever it is, you know, and I feel for them. I really do because we all have them. We all had them, have them, and, and life should be open for guys like you and I, uh, David, to educate these young people that life is normal. Right. And, and learn from our mistakes. That, you know, the biggest thing that was ever told to me, and I tell it to young people today, you're going to make mistakes. It's life. I don't care who you are, where you've been. I was in a big room, 300 people. Someone goes, oh, I never made a mistake. I said, really? You ever drove 20 miles an hour over speed limit? They go, well, maybe passing someone. I said, did you know if you had an accident and killed somebody that's vehicular homicide, you can go to prison. Are you a bad guy? So things can happen. And as I tell young people every day, and as you do, is, you know, you have to take your mistakes and learn from them. If you can do that, you're going to be a superstar. And that's how my success rate, I don't know if your audience knows this, I have the highest, I, I developed a program called the Reality Check Program. Right. It has the highest success rate of any program documented, not by me, by a college, documented by Eastern Florida State College. 
and they took all my data and they did a quantitative analysis of it and we had the highest success rate of any program in the country. So I was proud of that. Even more proud when I was in Congress and the congressman says to me, he goes, you must be really proud of your numbers. I go, you know what number I'm more proud of? He says, well, buddy, I go, how about the young person who saw my program or heard me speak and didn't get into the car with the kid with right. the drugs or the kid who didn't go pick up a knife or do the super thing? I don't know that number, but I know it's out there. And that's the number I, I, I focus on. Oh, Larry, that's that's incredible. Yeah. So, Larry, I want to I touch on a few questions over in the chat. Yeah, you know, it's an open book today, David. What <laughs> are you talking about? You got me. Wow. Um, so, so uh, we have a question, and um, it's it's from Marty in the chat. He wants to know when you when you go out to restaurants today, do you position yourself so you're always kind of in a corner, so you, you've got walls behind you and you can see what's going on? Um, and and you know, so so what happens today when you're going out? Where do you position yourself there, or if you're going Absolutely. to the post office, or to I don't know, um, yeah, a movie, the store, stuff like that. Absolutely. Great question. Uh, absolutely. I do. Uh, it's funny. You'll see cops do that as well because they get very good. Uh, oh, okay. Fact, when I go out with some police chiefs and friends of mine or, you know, cops, I know and guys that are good guys, we'll go out to lunch or dinner and we're both going for the right to, to the seat against the wall. <laughs> and we laugh because, you know, and then it's funny. I'll actually say you got me now because I want to make sure my blind side is covered. And I, I know it's something that it's just innate in me. I don't feel threatened. I, I'm not at that point where, you know, anything can happen in life, but I don't feel, I'm more, I'm more want to be there so I can maybe prevent something from happening. Right. Some crazy person or something. And it's funny in movie theaters, you know, I'll actually sit at a spot where if somebody came in there, I could actually get them because of the movie or, you know, try to tackle them or do something. Right. Or when I'm into a, a restaurant, I'll kind of try to get a table where I can, uh, literally focus, David, on that spot to help. Not to duck and hide, it's just to run and help. And also, it's that, you don't. it's a blind side, and that situation went away. Then, when you're sitting there, I mean, I've had been many times with law enforcement friends or uh, guys in my old business, and you'd say, did you see that? And uh, they'd look at me and got it. And it, it might be two two people coming in that just had that Weird look. And I don't mean uh, prejudices of any sorts. I mean right. that something could have out was out of place. It could be wearing a hat in summertime in Florida. It could be where they parked their car, the angle of it when they pulled into the restaurant and they're backed in, ready to go. So it's just little things that you pick up that now put your spidey senses on, on high alert. And you're ready to go. And I totally that guy great question and that's in everywhere it's it's even the people when i drive when i'm driving yeah i look to see who's coming up to me my sides and stuff and it's just it's something that's once you have it it's so hard to get away from and true relaxation for me is when i go to a uh vacation i'm going to vacation next week and i'm gonna go on a beach where uh, hopefully uh, not many people around and, right. and where I could totally like just take in the sun, go swimming and relax. And it's crazy because David, I'll still have it. I know I'll see something. Yeah. Oh, what are they doing here? And your brain just works that way. Wow. So. I mean, that's Larry, that's phenomenal. Uh, thanks so much for, for sharing that. Um, 
I'm going to switch gears a little bit. We have something called the velocity of information. So I'm actually writing a book on it right now. For anybody out there watching this, here's the first. I hope I get one. Of my, really? I appreciate it. I'm a reader. Leave buddy. <laughs> David, I'm a reader. I always, I read every day of my life. Yeah. Every day. It's Tell you what, I will. Uh, I'll sign you. A, uh, I will send you a signed copy uh, afterwards, just to get me a postal address. And sure. yeah, School of Errors, um, the most honest book. Uh, buy it. That's all. Yeah, there. Oh wow! Look at this guy. All right, Absolutely. Absolutely. telling everybody, everybody to buy it. Chapter one: How thinking about a bagel can get you through the worst day of of your life. So, a hey, velocity of information, and 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 I wanted to make sure I address this with with you, Larry, have you talk about this? So lately, you know, in March, the coronavirus hits and suddenly people are told the NCAA basketball tournament shutting down. We were supposed to go to Disney, my family, and a day before Disney shuts down, things like that. Um, so the, the velocity of information, you, you talked about this too in several of your episodes. Um, one was when you were leaving prison, you were on a Greyhound bus and a lady next to you had a flip phone and, and you're curious, you're like, that's, I, I don't, I haven't seen one of the, I'm not familiar with that because when you went to prison, you said, um, there was kind of the brick phone. Oh. So, so you asked her if you could oh. see the, oh. <laughs> the, that was a razor flip phone right here. So, um, so, so you asked, and then the other, another, um, story was you stopped at a gas station, the Greyhound bus and and you're kind of like, well, why are we stopping at a gas station? Because, you know, it's just some candy and things like that. And you, and you weren't aware that gas stations had evolved to like a subway or an Arby's plus a gas station. So what I, what I want to ask you is, so there's something called velocity of information or how fast we get information and then face validity of how, you know, it's the right information. So um, how are you able to get information in, in, in prison? And I want to ask one specific case to, to have you focus this, um, September 11, 2001, the, uh, the terrorist attacks, how did you learn about that in prison? How did you know you're getting accurate information from people? Um, how did it change? Like the first thing you heard versus what you heard 10 days later, how could you get information? Like, are we under attack? Are we going to war? Because right now, I think people struggle with this whole velocity. They get information. Um, they don't know if it's accurate. Um, but but again, I mean, you're you're talking about a situation where you might only be getting small pieces of information coming into you because you can't go on the internet and, and search this stuff out. It's so tell me about that story of September 11, 2001, how you found out about it, and then how you how you were like, I gotta get information, I gotta know what's really going down. How do you do that? Well, okay, that's a great question. Let me answer it in a couple of ways. First of all, in today, in today's world, getting information, like you said, you can go to one-sided websites and get only one side of something, and you can go to another side and get the other side. In, in my belief, and I'm on media a lot, I do a lot of TV interviews, you have to read between the lines. That's number one. Understand your source, right. but understand and, and read between the lines of any news organization or a newspaper you read or something kind of read in between the lines. And what I mean by that is you can feel or even reading and watching sense of it's leaning one way. I can probably do that in a couple of paragraphs of it leaning this way, leaning that way. And that doesn't make them wrong or right. It just sure. makes you start looking at it in a different light. Maybe in September 11th, whew, talk about never forget. I was in my cell reading a book. 
And a friend comes up and says, hey, Larry, you got to see this. Now, they had four TVs on the walls, just four TVs. Okay. And they, always one was to a news station, one was to a sports station. The other two were different various shows that they put on, and that was it. So always had a news station, always had a, a sports station, and the other two. And even in the prisons I was in, you had a TV room. You didn't have TVs in your cell. This is not like uh, stuff you see at state prisons where they let you have TVs in your cell. That, that doesn't happen. In fact. Okay. So I'm sitting, it was about whatever, 10 in the morning, 9, whatever it was. I'm reading a book in my, in my bed, and my buddy comes up to me from New York. I'm from New York. And he says to me, hey, Larry, uh, you got to come see this. A plane hit the World Trade Center. Ah, okay, I can read. Thinking it's a, you know, a Cessna or some small plane. It has happened, you know, you know that kind of stuff. And nothing's going on. And all of a sudden, he runs back and he goes, Larry, you got to see this. Hurry up. Come on. So I walk out of the cell. And when I walk, turn around, and uh, it's like a big day room. I look up, and that second plane goes into the tower. And it goes in like butter. I mean, my, my whole demeanor changed. Right. I was like, you're seeing something. You know, it's not a movie. This is news. And it has breaking news. And then uh, the whole stuff. And you have all these commentators. I had taken my chair at that point and put it right out in front of that TV. And a bunch of people did. And we watched that, watched it live happen and listened to it. Now, at the same time, the... There were people who were non-American, and they were cheering and stuff, and they started getting stabbed. Oh, wow. So the whole federal prison system ended up locking down because, listen, you might be in prison, but you're still an American. And people, Americans were stabbing the other people. You had other people who were sympathizers with whatever they were, and they're right. cheering this, and they're getting stabbed and killed. They had to shut the whole prison system down. Now that hurt us worse because now we're locked in our cells, not knowing what's going on. Right. You have a transistor radio. So I used to get NPR, I used to get certain news stations in that local area. I was in Jessup, Georgia, so we only had a couple of stations, which is outside of it Brunswick, Brunswick, Georgia, it's a little town, nowhere, you know, kind of like when I went to Wisconsin and I spoke for Jewel's Mutual Insurance Company. I went to, I don't know where in Wisconsin, it's sure. an hour and a half somewhere, and there's nothing but, you know. So it was kind of like that. And it was amazing because I used to get the USA Today newspaper every day in, in prison. And so that would come, and that was like a big thing, and it would come late in the afternoon. Literally, I read every word, every even ads in that paper. Every day. Yeah. I mean, you just, uh, you know, I was a guy that loved information and I loved to read. So I read everything, precariously a reader. So all of a sudden, now I'm listening to the radio, like you said, deciphering what's true or not. And after about a week, then some crazy started coming in. Oh, it's a conspiracy theory. Yeah. The government doing this, it's that. And now you got to take and decipher it and figure out all your own knowledge. You take your knowledge. I feel bad for very vulnerable young people who haven't been around in life enough to realize what they should really listen to and what they should know, what they should take. Exactly. They go in here. As I tell young people, listen, you're listening to me and, and doing my program. Take what I'm saying, put it in here, filter the good stuff, and, and throw out the stuff you don't want. And, and absorb information. Because the more information you absorb, the better reason you have for whatever explanation you can right. How I used to teach young people to do that is debate. 
I said, I want you to take a side. Great. I want you to debate, this, debate it with you. And I want you to know everything about your side. But I don't like that side. I don't care. It's not about like and dislike. I want you to get enough information about that side to debate it. And then they get more information. In them, and before you know it, they start looking at things differently. And that's how I help young people decipher information from one source to another. And the more sources you get, always the better. And in prison, uh, we used to, like I said, we used to get the BBC. So, you know, you'd get these at one in the morning. You'd get shows that, uh, you know, from outside the United States. And you're hearing that one. And you're hearing NPR. And you're hearing uh, a couple other local shows, how they come. And it's so funny because whatever state you were in, you've got a different kind of view. And yeah. it's very, very noticeable. If you're in a very conservative state, you're going to get a very conservative view, a very liberal state, you're going to get a very liberal view. And you have to wean through all of it by saying to yourself, okay, that's one view. And when you get it, and obviously through life's knowledge, can something happen? Can, you know, I always say as a man who's been in the criminal justice system, there is no way they can keep a secret that big. That many people can keep right. a secret. Right. I mean, you know, there's a there's a saying in prison, baby. Three can keep a secret if two are dead. Oh yeah, yeah. People, people tattoo that on their necks or whatever. Three can keep a secret if two are dead. Meaning, it's not it's coming out, you know. And I can't believe for a second that is a. Now do I think that things are happening? The government does. Obviously, I'm not one that's very big into that. But listen, I listen. I don't think everything's a conspiracy. But I don't think everything's rosy either. You know, I don't think everything's so cut and dry. Oh, we would never do that. In fact, a part of me in this whole kind of what's going on today really believes a lot of people are sheep. And why I mean that is the government don't even know what's going on. One day you hear masks. The next day you hear no masks. Next day you hear testing. We don't want testing. What do you believe? And it's amazing. You watch massive amount of people go from this one to this one. It's like they're looking to show that they can control people without people actually doing their own research, their own uh, independent research. And I don't mean like actually going to a laboratory. I mean getting stuff from all sides. Who's the source? How knowledgeable are they? Obviously, you have a doctorate. You you got that for a reason. You didn't just get that because, hey, you're a nice guy. I got my experience. Call it a doctor if you want. Right. From being there, doing it, and experiencing it, and working with thousands of kids. That's experience. Though. So you take all the knowledge. If you and I sat down and we come up with a, a thesis of anything, they can look at the knowledge and look at this knowledge, 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 and take it for what it is. If you just say anybody's going to write some crazy thing, there's some crazy stuff on the internet, obviously. Right. I tell kids that, too. You know, I said, you know, I worry about kids at a very early age, getting wired so whacked out that they're not, you know, I always try, I try to say this the right way. I hope parents uh, let their kids absorb information in the right way. And I'm not saying stop them, but discuss it. There's, There's not enough communications with parents today. You know, it's my way or the highway. People ask me a great question, David. They say, why do you have such a high success with me? It's just because I don't teach them. They teach themselves and they want to learn. They want to change. You can't make a person change. They have to want to change. We all know that, whether it's addictions or whatever it is. 
When a young person wants to change, he becomes a success and he wants to help others. So I open their eyes to what can happen if they don't change. Fact. I mean, you want to see scars on me? You want to see some pictures of me with gang members or this? I'll show you it all. Now, do you want that? I'll tell you how that's going to go. Or do you want this? And now you have to work hard for this or what you do. And I want them to change. I want them to use my experience. There's only there's only two things we can't uh, only two things that us as adults can give people, and that is our experience and knowledge. Whatever's in here and the experience. That's it. I often tell young people, listen, you guys are smarter than me. Right now, I have I'm very good at math, but let's whatever science take a science problem. You guys just come out of science club. I guarantee you know more about science than I do right now. But you don't have my experience. Right. You get my experience. That's all I'm going to give you. And as adults, David, we have to get out of this habit of my way. It's the highway. And that's, that's so wrong, David, because too many people, adults, are not able to step back and learn from young people. I'll give you a, a little example. I get asked all the time, how did you know that? How did you know that? How did you know about the, the, the gangs, how they do it, the, the gang signs or uh, gang? I, I do a whole, I have a whole thing on my uh, website about uh, texting symbols. Yeah. We would never know. Got to look at and they go, how do you know? I go, kids told me. So Larry, I want to, I want to touch on a few things because this, this is, this is excellent, right? So you've, you've talked about, um, one is you just said it. How do you know? Because you listen to the kids. Now, what you're doing is is a process called qualitative interviewing, and it's something I I, I write about in my book. It's something I work with with school districts, and basically, it's what you're talking about. Yeah, it, yeah it, it's it's asking kids. It's sitting down with four, you know, five kids and having a discussion instead of a survey, right? Everybody wants to do a survey and that's not a way to get information. But there was something else you touched on and I want to go, um, there was a question in it or a comment in the chat and it was about debate um, in learning somebody else's position. That goes back, you know, thousands of, of years and we don't teach it anymore. It, it was Marty in the chat said, the debate idea is brilliant. Yes, if we teach kids and adults how to debate, knowing somebody else's position, not that you have to agree with it, right? We're not exactly. forcing you to agree with it, but you have to understand it. Try to to understand where they're coming from. But people today and kids, yeah, it is this whole binary thing. Either you're with my position or you're wrong. And and as you said, that's flawed because um, it, it just is leading to more polarizing. We see it in the media. We see it in politics. Yeah. We see it with adults, kids. It's either right or wrong. And what you said early on, Larry, you're right. I mean, if we can teach debate skills, hey, my brother, you know, was on like a debate team back in the 70s in high school. And then, you know, that kind of went away. It wasn't even there by the time I got to, to high school. So I'm so glad, you know, you mentioned that because right there is a great starting point. You know, debating, and it's not even about, obviously, we all have our passions, whatever they are. And you should take something because to know the other person's view makes you so much better on your view. And I often tell people this, though I, I talk with police chiefs all the time and I talk with a lot of officials. If you can change my mind, I'm open to it. Right. You know, uh, if people give me the statistical data or whatever, whatever, however you can change my mind, 
I'm open to change. And that's where a lot of people aren't. They get so closed down. Uh, please change my mind. I want people to defend their position with logic, not, well, that's it. You know, listen, I, I, there's too many people who come up with something and they just stick to that one side and that's all they know. And then when you give them something from the other side, they don't know. Oh, that's just the way it is. My belief, that's it. Goodbye. You don't want to believe it, get out of here. It's not, that's not, first of all, it's not even understanding your own position. Because If you don't know what someone's going to debate you about, then, then you're not thinking right. Or I think most people, David, are scared, are scared to change their mind because of yeah. their beliefs. Because I because I think if if people change their mind, it makes them look like one they were either wrong or they're scared and they're kind of going with something. This, so Larry, th again, this is this is terrific because um, you know what uh, what I tell people is, hey, if I become more informed, if I get more information, things change over time, and now I know more. Um, yeah, I'm I need to change my position because I have I have more information. And people, they, 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 they view that, right? Especially kids view that as being wrong or even adults. They'll stay with it <laughs> and I'm not going to accept. And I'm like, okay. I I, I was going to go there with politics for a second, David. You're 100% right. It kind of gets me irritated when the, when the media or somebody will come back and say, oh, in, in 30 years ago, you said this. Well, if you don't change your mind over 30 years, Something's wrong with you because as I tell young people, when you're 20, you think you know it all. When you right. hit 30, you look back and you go, man, I was an idiot at 20. <laughs> when you hit 40, you go, man, I didn't know anything at 30. When you hit 50, you look back and say, do I know anything or am I still learning? And I know I'm 58, I'll be 59, and I'm always learning. And my views change. If you take a politician who is so stuck in his ways that he's not able to change. Right, wrong, or indifference, maybe not. Maybe he's got more information, stronger in that position. But if you, you I'll give a little incident. Brett Kavanaugh, right. what he did when he was a kid, listen, I'm not going to get into the political end of that, but come on, he was 20 years old. He changed. He's a man who changed. And everybody changes. And if we're stuck on, I call it stuck on stupid, if we were stuck, if you were the same person where you're 20, I don't want to, I don't want you in a position of, of leadership or power because you didn't learn anything. Right. And that that's we need to do that as a people is show people. And I am so middle of the road politically, so middle of the road. I believe in right and wrong. I believe in helping people. I believe in there's no people. Where are you? I'm apolitical, meaning I don't whatever it is. Whatever, if you're right, you're right. If you're wrong, you're wrong. Let's go with that. Go with the character. Do things. But stop with, oh, he said this 30 years ago, and today he said this. So what? So and, I, what? and I would assume that cancel culture. So for you, right, Larry, I, I mean, that would eliminate, I mean, the terrific work that you're doing right now and would have this cascade effect of more people um, not having access to you to help them down a path of making wise choices. So, um, I, yeah, I... I look at this cancel culture and it really concerns me because um, right. I, I, when I do expert witness work, there's, there's something I, I always, always remember an attorney saying, and it was things are always laminated to context and situation. So you have to, when you're framing something out, it was, what was it like at that moment in time? 
and the specific context. And and it could be, you know, well, maybe, you know, 20 years ago for a school shooting or something like that, it wasn't, you know, common to, you know, have reporting systems or things like that, or it wasn't common to do these type of trainings or whatever. So you have to like put yourself in that mindset. So now it's different the way we do things today. But um, I, I, you, you touched on it before, before I lose it. You're talking about coronavirus, right? All the information coming about coronavirus. How about prisoners? How about prisoners today? How would they find out? How should they find out about coronavirus? What they need to know? What's happening in in the facility they're in? How to keep themselves safe? Because they're probably getting very skewed, very limited information. So you know, somebody comes to you and and says, "How do I know that I'm being what I'm being told is accurate?" Because like I'm seeing these headlines on the news, like breaking this just in, you know, another twenty thousand tested positive or whatever. How how would you tell people today? Hey, how here's the best way to find out if this is accurate or not and, and what you should do and what you should be watching around you happening. Well, first of all, let's, that's a two-part question, I think. Uh, first of all, in prison, how they communicate, there's so many ways that information gets leaked, you know, or guards bring it in, people call home. Uh, there is internet, but there's no internet like you and I have. There is email. They pay for emails. They pay, I think, five cents for I don't know how many minutes of email. Okay. We didn't have that when I was in. So you email. I actually have people I email in prison through what they call core links. So there is information that gets filtered into the prison. And this is the problem. When you give information to someone in prison, I'm talking prisoners, to some of them are Looney Tunes. They get it and they make it whatever they want it to be. And all of a sudden we're all dying. You better write, you know, right, right. Or whatever. So obviously the prisons are better by giving more information. Let people decipher. Don't hide information from them because information is going to come. And the less information you get, the more your brain plays tricks on you to, 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 to for whatever nut jobs next to you saying that the world's ending. You know, I think, it reminds me of a story. We had a friend of mine. To this day, he's a friend of mine. He got out. I did a lot of time. Very smart guy. I did legal work with him. And he used to get all the people crazy. Oh, you know, he used to listen to that Art Bell and the yes, yeah. and all of that. And, you know, the Martians are coming and the world's ending and everything. He had everybody going pro code crazy. The psychologist, the prison psychologist come down and said, will you stop it? You stop. You got all these people coming to my place. They're going great. And I would just sit there cracking up. And he, he used to do it as a joke to mess with people. But it showed you how information can, can or people can be susceptible. Now, I'm also not talking about the high, most highly intelligent people. There, you know, I'm talking about some people who are very easily uh, led or low, I hate to say low IQs, couldn't even read. I mean, there's a percentage right. of people can't even read. So you tell them, look at this headline. They know how to read three words and they're reading that. They c- couldn't comprehend that whole entire paragraph if they, you know, if it meant their release date. So it, it's sad, but that's what happens in, in the joint. And it, But that behooves the prison system to give as much information as they can. They shouldn't keep it on one channel, whatever the channel is. They should have it on multiple channels and let as many people as as possible know. But inmates will get that information and that's the problem. It's what kind of information they get. That's the key. So, so you talked about um, the prison system giving information. So like right now with coronavirus, uh, I mean, what do you think should be happening? Should it be, you know, that the... the, the 
the guards are sharing information. I mean, because you talk about different TVs on, you know, different channels. So that would be some information. But of course, you know, they're they're going to be hearing from a relative and the relative said, hey, I went shopping today yeah. and I had to wear a mask. And they're like, you had to wear a mask. And they're like, you know, I interact with a thousand people every day in close proximity and I'm not wearing a mask. So um, if it if it was up to you, what what do you think should be the means of information and, and the information that's shared right now with with inmates who are, are probably, as you said, a number of, you know, pretty concerned about, you know, their life. I mean, is this, am I going to catch this? Am I going to be on a respirator? Do I need to do this? What am I being told? What am I not being told? Well, reality is, reality strikes when a cellmate gets pulled out of his cell or dies. And I've yeah. had, I was in prison when they had mercy. Yes. And yeah. I was in there when some things and we saw people die. So, so you can't, fake that, you can't lie that, you can't spin that. A person spider bite grew to his legs and they took him to medical and he doesn't come back and someone who knows his family said he passed away. So obviously it doesn't lie. So in this same situation, people have coronavirus, something happens, they're taken to medical, they don't come back. That strikes and that's going on. Obviously we know that's going on. Especially but obviously, you know, uh, the more information the prison gives about what's going on and the best they can help them, it, it, it's, a, it's a Petri dish, though. You know, prison is, you know, people think, oh, they're isolated. No, it's a Petri dish. There's people who have to feed them. There's people, guards right. coming out of the prison. And you're indoors. And, you know, the, we all know indoors is the worst place where you have multiple people. So you take a unit with 100 people in it. One guy gets it before you. It, it used to happen all the time, David. When a person got a cold, you'd see, you know, half the unit get the cold or, or flu or whatever it was. Same thing that's going on now. And the only way they can stop that, and only way they can stop that is obviously uh, more information showing about hand wash, giving the right kind of products that are going to help people, meaning soaps and hand washing. Right. People. There are people who don't have the money. I mean, it's, it's really a lot of it's sad in prison. A lot of people think, oh, it's all these guys were this way or that way. They're not. They're people, some of them have no more means. Any dollar they ever had went towards illegal work. It didn't work. Now they're sitting there living off the government soap, if you want to call it, and they're not giving stuff and, you know, they're not treated the greatest. Our prison system is so broke. It, you know, I right. talk about it every day. And my action crew, you know, I have the Larry Law action crew. It's grown to over 5,000. And that's just people who want to sign up to just give emails and we send emails and try to correct problems with people who don't have a voice. And uh, it's working great. I'm talking about people on the outside, too. A young man who got killed in jail, uh, a veteran, combat veteran, and we got the sheriff to at least get the FDLE into open, at least review his investigation. He needs to do more. But, you know, it's so sad because most inmates, most people incarcerated don't have a voice. And they're the forgotten people. And here's the problem with that. And trust me, there are bad people in there. And I never want getting out. I emphasize that. But most of them are. And do you want someone living next to you, David, who has hope and maybe a chance to do better? Or a guy that says, you know what? I don't care if I go back. Right. You're his first victim. Right. So we don't want that. We want to help people. And the best way to help and prevent more victims is help the people who do the crimes. 
you know, and if we can help the people who do the crimes, we're going to have less victims. So everybody wins. So I'm a victim advocate as well. You know, I deal with victims a lot. And trust me, part of why I do what I do is because I felt bad. I didn't hurt people physically in a robbery, but I was a bad guy. I put gun in their face. I made, you know, listen, you know who hated me more than anyone is the insurance companies. Sure. Because they, they paid. But and it's not funny. It, it, I have to catch myself and say, listen, I, I and I know that and I get, listen, there are going to be a percentage of people who just never like me. And that's quite all right. I can't worry about pleasing the world. I know what I do for people and the success stories I have, which makes, makes me keep wanting to do more. And that's why I keep doing what I do. Cause I love to see people change and help. And I, I, I'm a poster boy of change. Listen, I was a bad guy. And I, got, I went to prison at 34 years old, David, I got out at 46. Yeah. I'm now 50 up eight. I'll be 59. I change. People do change. So that's the big thing. I think people need to know that. Right. And, and that's uh, that point we need to, to resonate. I mean, especially with, with kids, I mean, uh, you know, something goes wrong in a kid's life and, and suddenly they're thinking I'm ruined forever. Right. And, and you're like, no, I mean, you've made it, you've made a bad choice or bad choices. Absolutely. You've, Absolutely. You, you have a life ahead of you and now, you know, you need to make choices to make that life as, as, you know, meaningful as it can be and to give back and help. And, and again, I mean, this is, and this is, you're right on because we're, we're in this weird time right now where if you have made a bad choice, people want to um, define you by that bad choice 30 years from now, 40 years from now, whatever, that that choice becomes you. And you're saying, no, I mean, the, it, it, it can be, but, I mean, if you don't change your, your choices, your decision-making, but we've, we've all been there, right? We've all made different bad choices. Um, so, you know, Larry, I, I, I want to share this. I, I was listening to one of, one of your episodes and you, uh, you, I think in the middle of a, a robbery and an older couple came in and you said to them, I need, I need both of you to, I need both of you to sit down um, close your eyes and and uh, wait five minutes. And then the next day, you were reading in the newspaper, and and they were talking. They they were interviewed, and they said, um, you know, he was he was obviously was, Robert, but a really nice guy. Really, it really was funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that robbery was in, in Sarasota, Florida. And it was, I, of course, I remember it was next to a dive shop, and we had to go in and out. And my drive, the guy, one of my crew member came back. I wasn't there. He went back. It was like a, it was like a a cluster F. And so anyway, uh, the old couple comes in and you know, I'm in a suit and I open up my show and they go, and I go, no, 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 Stand up. No, no, you just come with me. Sit right here. Just look at the wall and tie them up. I never gagged anyone. I didn't want to hurt anybody. Right. So, I didn't want to do right. that. so sitting there and I said, now listen, you got to stay there for five minutes. And when I leave five minutes, then you can get up. Okay. 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 So I went out, actually, when I went out the back, he wasn't there. I came in. I go, I'm checking on you. Oh, no, no, no. And I wasn't, of course. Right. And he ends up going out and go leave. And next day, it was so funny. They asked him, well, you know, he killed. Uh, he was a nice man. You know, and obviously, I was a nice man. Obviously, I didn't want to hurt. To this day, I really have a heart for young people and old people. Put it this way. I like to protect the underdog or the disadvantaged. I have no prejudices in me. I don't. I I can't stand when people pick on people, right. uh, whether right. it's because of their intelligent level or their physical level or whatever level. And 
You know, nobody should be superior and better than other people. Yes, you might be smarter. Yes, but then help it. Use your brains to help somebody. You know, one of the best days of my life, uh, it was in prison, and myself and another two inmates, it was three of us, we helped this older black guy, he was about 50 at the time, we helped him get his GED and helped him read because I couldn't even imagine right. what prison would be like without reading. Right. David, what you and I take for granted, our intellect, our knowledge, our communication skills, everything we do, and we just take it for granted. We just act. It is what it is. How would you like to be in a place where you can't read, can't do anything, can't read? And we taught him. And at his graduation, he ended up getting his GED. And we started from literally the cat jumped over the moon and stuff. Yeah. And he ended up crying. We were all crying. All these tough inmates. Because this man said it was the best day of his life. And I'll never forget it because... Think of that. I mean, this man is never getting out of prison, and this is the best day of his life. Yeah. But we opened up a world to him that is, could you imagine? I mean, I read novels. I read books. I read the Bible five times cover to cover. I read the Koran three times. I read the Torah three times. I mean, because I was in places you can't do anything but read. They only give you a religious book, so I've read spiritual books from Buddha. I read everything, and I'm a big reader. It's had a law book, so law books out the game. And my point is, it, it's just, I love knowledge. I love absorbing it. And I can't even imagine to this minute not being able to read. Oh, man. Yeah. And, and there's a good percentage. I think it's over 20%. Over. I, I think even higher than that. You can look it up for functional or literates in prison. And well, I, I, didn't, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah, it's the, I mean, dehumanizing and isolating. Uh, oh. Right? I mean, and... Oh. Something that you and I... Again, we take the littlest, you know, people ask me, what did you miss in prison? I miss taking a shower without shower shoes, but bare feet. I know it sounds crazy, right. but you just don't think about it. You get in there, you get in your house, you get undressed, you get ready, you jump in the shower, you feel good. You're taking shower shoes, you're bringing your boots to the shower if there's some trouble going on. And, right. and, and you don't realize it until you're out and, and it, take, it took so long. To, to get back to normal. I mean, I had what they call sensory overload. I mean, I couldn't function. You know, the, the average human being makes 1,500 choices a day. Where you're going to get up, coffee, how much, another cup, right. uh, what are you going to wear, red tie, blue tie, this. the average inmate makes 100. Now you take that man and throw him to society. Can't make it. It's called yeah. sensory overload. This goes, um, you talked about this in a, a podcast, uh, getting off at that subway um, oh. and, and you're looking, you're looking up at, you know, the, the menu of, you know, different subs and different toppings it it's too much. Right. Be, and you went back on, you went back on the bus because I, went I mean, back yeah. and cried in the back as a, I was, if it wasn't for my cousin, who's oh, one of the most intelligent women I've ever met, uh, life, life coaches, she's a psychologist, everything. And, she, if I didn't call her, I probably wouldn't be here because I, I was not ready for the free world. And they don't prepare you. That's another BS thing they do. And all of a sudden, I literally wanted to go back to prison. I didn't feel comfortable till I got to the halfway house and they locked me up again because you're right. back locked up. I, I couldn't, I could not order a sandwich. And I'm an intelligent guy. I read the paper every right. day, got a degree, all this crap doesn't mean anything it's sensory overload your brain is not made 
to do that, to, to be suppressed for so long and then just thrown open. It's like, you know, it's, it, it's the main reason very repressed young people, and I deal with this a lot, people who come from very strict religious backgrounds or very restrict parenting, once they get out into the free world and have choices on their own, what do they do? DUIs, drinking too much, right. a lot of addiction, because they're given this, from this, from being tight to bang, opening up the world to them, they're not ready for it. They're not ready for it. I try to help parents say, listen, you better prepare to prepare your child for the real world is not to isolate them and do it. I'm not a believer in homeschools. Now, we have we can debate them forever. Sure. And it's just because of the interaction with people and different people. And in situations, whether it's from bullying to, I'm not talking about the education itself and what schooling you're in. Uh, we will get that to that. That's another whole animal. But I'm talking about that social interaction that is so important for a young person to realize they have to deal with other people and other other faiths and religions and creeds and everything else and right. deal with a bully situation, how to deal. We got to prepare our kids for, for a future that's not, oh, it's not rosy. You know, we're not, we're not going to be living in a bubble here. You know, you're living in the real world. So that's important. And I wrote about this, you know, also in, in my book, it was a, a school district outside of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, two, three years ago. They, the, the parents, the eighth grade uh, students, their parents didn't want the students to take a trip to Washington, D.C. Now, Washington, D.C. in the last 24 hours, pretty crazy place. Right, but back then it was a regular class trip. I love and, DC. Oh, yeah, and, and, and the parents were saying we don't want to go because it's too, too oh. dangerous. So they were limiting their their kids' access, and so again, the kids get to see this. They get to make choices while they're there, and it's like, oh my god, you know. Again, let your kids not let your kids encourage your kids to make choices instead oh. of making choices. And and this goes to teachers, but it goes to parents, right? Um, that's something with my kids, you know. Um, we actually went shoe shopping yesterday for, for, you know, my daughters cause they're, they're growing in, oh, and, um, 13 and nine, but they both I'm have summer, summer you, birthdays. <laughs> so my, I'm going to send you a link to my program. Oh yeah. And we go in and, um, you know, they, they know what they have to get for, you know, for shoes, you know, for school and, and they pick out their shoes. Right. And they kind of have, you know, like a price range and, and things like this, but uh, they have to make decisions then, you know, we're not saying you have to, here's the shoe that you're going to get or whatever. No, you have to get this. And, and, um, but it, it's this thing where, as you talked about, you know, 1500 decisions a day we're typically making. And, and then, you know, you, uh, in prison, it's a hundred day or a hundred decisions roughly, but we also do this a lot with kids. We, we narrow down the decisions that kids are, are making. Um, and I see this a lot in schools. This is where it gets back to that qualitative interview where you're talking about interviewing kids and they're, they're telling you, you know, here's the symbols, here what they, here's what they mean. Um, and one thing, again, it's like handbooks in schools, right? We, we, we put these big handbooks together. We give them the kids. They never read them. And it's like, here's all the rules versus, you know, rules versus asking kids, you know, um, what does it mean for you to have choices in school? What does it mean for you to feel safe? What, how should, how could we do this? That would be better. Like over lunch, we just like subscribe things. Exactly. Get their input. You know, one, they'll feel like they own it. Two, when, when you let a kid make that choice, they feel now I made the choice. What am I going to say? I can't, you know, it's not like, Oh, you made that. I didn't like that. I never liked that. Why'd you do that? When, and, and the older they get, 
obviously, you know, I often talk about this and the consequences of that choice. A five-year-old knows don't touch a stove. It's hot. But a five-year-old can't understand the consequence of not having feelings in their fingertips for the rest of their life. Right. A five-year-old understands don't cross the street. Doesn't understand getting killed. At about 11, we did a few studies. At about 11 years old, David, young people understand if I do this, this will happen. And that's where you start using the consequence of approach to parenting. Listen, I'm going to take your phone for three days. I love parents to say take it for a year. You're nuts, number one, because you're not going to do that. And they know it and you know it. And before you know it, you're working <laughs> nothing. Right. You've got to understand a 13-year-old. Let's take a 13-year-old. When they're, they're only cognitive on this earth for seven years, let's call it six years old, five years old. After that, they start understanding things. So maybe some from six to 13, eight years they're on this earth. That's it. Now, that young person, you tell me taking away something for a year, that's an eighth of his life. Yeah, yeah. It's so unrealistic. Days and you and I, David, at our age, you tell me a year, that gone by, wait, a year? Are you kidding me? I'll be done and that'll be done in three weeks. That's like tomorrow. Oh my God. That's right. That's right. Take a young person and a year is forever. When we were young, we didn't think we'd live to this age. You're what, 40 something, and you know it now. Yeah. You take a eight year old, nine year old, 10 year old, a year. Are you crazy? Parents got to stop. I often tell parents listen, step back. You don't have to give a punishment right away. Think about it because what you do means a lot now because the boundaries got to be set. Consequences got to be set. They have to be reasonable and attainable. And kids don't change. It's not a 100% compliance. If it is, something's wrong. You want him to challenge you. You want him to push you and then he sees how you react. That's such absorption from a kid in their formative years. I see it all the time. And, and it's usually... When I work with families, David, I don't work with just a kid. I work with the parents, too. Sure. You know that as well as I do. They need it as much as the kid. You know, I do have a hard cut at noon. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we are a little over that. Wow, this flew by. So, Larry, can I ask you one question? One, yeah. One question. So, what what was the well, most again. Ina- <laughs> what was the most inaccurate information you ever received while you were in prison, something that was totally false, and then what was like the consequence of that? You, you got some bad intel. What was the bad intel, and then what was the consequence of that? Wow, that's a great question. Uh, what was the worst thing that ever? Like you know, and you, you thought, okay, this is authentic, this is real, and it turned out to be false, and then something well, yeah, bad I, happened. A transfer I was getting. Okay, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. I was preparing for it. I got my stuff. I literally gave stuff away and then I wasn't transferred. And it, you know, it often made me think that they did it on purpose, you know, to mess with me. I ended up becoming a rough inmate because, listen, I I tried the fighting way. doesn't work. They're bigger, stronger, and it's the government. But when I got to being legal and law and letters and communicating the right way, I got action. And that is why I think they did that to me. And after years of, of thinking about it, but it ripped my heart out. I thought I was going and wrote letters, did everything. And now, nah, and I think they did it on purpose. So, okay. wow. Well, Larry, um, t- 
tell us where we can learn more. I mean, a lot of people have been contacting me as the show's been going on. How do I learn more about Larry's stuff? So you could go to YouTube, obviously. Go to my YouTube channel. You can you can watch my whole. Go to the playlist. Watch the Gangster Redemption series. It's my book. I have a book, a best-selling book called Gangster Redemption. Check it out. You can get it there. You can also listen to me actually summarize the book. But there's more stuff in the book. My website is realitycheckprogram.com. It's there. We're still working on stuff on that as well. A lot of that is evolving uh, because it's gotten so big. Everything has gotten big. Uh, I, I have a video that's very powerful. Uh, you got to check it out. It's it's really, they get right online. It's my whole story. It's built in four parts. It's called uh, Reality Check Program. is Larry's life. What prison is really like. What you're going to lose, which is family, friends, you know, the real important things. And the last section is avoiding and dissolving bad associations. So if you have a kid and the video is really geared for about 10 or 11, depending on maturity level, to 30, 40. I mean, we have people that old who need that wake up call, what they're going to lose if they keep oh, right. choices. So I often talk about that. And I said, listen, that's why I'm a big believer and let's let's give younger people breaks because you and i know in, in our profession baby that a, a, a man's brain doesn't mature till 25 a, a young girl is about 23 and that's not my numbers your numbers that's national numbers right. that, that's psychology numbers have been all over the world so why are we treating these people like they're, they're totally you know we got to understand consequences obviously but let's try to rehabilitate and not incarcerate my, my i always believe in education not incarceration that's my, my tagline educate now we have to incarcerate obviously there are certain situations that need to be and that's understandable but not with kids i'm dealing with some arizona stuff now that's very sad well, what they did to some kids there and they're hurting these kids in ways that it's going to come back to haunt all of us because when you hurt these kids at that level at 10 years old 11 years old putting them in isolation out. We are human beings who are right. social animals. It drives me nuts, but I can go on that subject. I, gotta, I have another one to do. But we got to do this again, David. You oh, but Larry, I would I absolutely would be an honor. And, and as you said, you know, what you're doing is you're, you're I'm going to bring it back to to the, the, the four points. You're helping people understand uh, the consequences of crime, including one, losing your freedom, two, your reputation, three, your self-respect, and four, your connection to family and getting people to look um, longer, look at goals. And, and it's not a cancel culture. Like we got to get beyond that. You know, if, if you do if people, you make a mistake, you make better decisions, you move forward. And okay. I, I can't say enough about how much I love your work. I have a monitor on this side and I'll be doing other things and I'll, and I'll bring it up and, and, you know, your latest episodes, uh, you know, it, it reads oh, it God, I love it, Larry. You're, you're just, you're so, you're so, um, in tune, great. Your message resonates. Your, your YouTube channel, you know, there's a reason why you're 710,000 subscribers and every day just going up because it's so good and it's so valuable to people. So just well, thank you. And, and we'll do this again. And once I hit a million, we're going to do some more stuff. I love, I love doing podcasts. I love able to get them. Eat small, big, doesn't matter. I like getting out to the messages and people, people are following you because they want your knowledge, obviously. And I'm glad I came on your show and appreciate you giving me the voice to do that as well. Good. And just so many comments, you know, excellent show, uh, you know, amazing show, Doc and Larry, you know, over on, on the right-hand side. I just appreciate that. Well, so everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I hope so. And 
Listen, I hope they come over to YouTube and check it out too. They can go Larry, just go to Larry Lawton, Jewel Deep, or if they just Google Larry Lawton on YouTube, you'll Obviously. Yeah, and I'm, I'm gonna. I have everything linked out. Actually, I I wrote um, the blog post for this ahead of time because I wanted to get this out as, as soon as we're done, so everything will be out in about an hour for everybody. I'll post of it too, David. I'll, I'll throw it up and let people listen to the intelligent level. Good. And someday, yeah, we'll we'll talk more about. Uh, yeah, I want to read your book. I really all right, everybody, this is Dr. David Proden from down here in the North Star Recording Studio in Southern Wisconsin with our guest, Larry Lawton, today. This has been amazing. Check out Larry's work um, on YouTube, just all over the place. Subscribe to his channel. Get there before it gets to a million subscribers. Or It's just, it's crazy. It's so popular. It's great stuff. Thank you again, Larry Lawton, for being a guest on the Safety Doc Podcast. Thanks. Stay safe, everybody. God bless. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.